If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. We've been in a series on this uh, book, which one author, one scholar said is a thoroughly irritating book. Having spent several hours pouring through the book, I agree with that author. This, uh, this book has a perplexity about it, about it that mirrors life. And that's part of the profundity of it. The author wanted to, to make you emotionally feel as if the book itself is a mixed bag. Because that's life. <laughs> the primary pursuit of the philosophy professor has been trying to find something in the universe that can satisfy the human heart. He's chasing after pleasure. He's chasing after riches as advancement, education, success, like a mad scientist trying to find that satisfaction, that contentment, and he's concluding that it's ultimately meaningless. It doesn't satisfy the human heart. And so the philosophy professor today is going to take us out of the so-called secular world, and he's going to move us into the church world. And the pious among us would say, it's about time. <laughs> the pious among us would say, it's about time we got to church. We all know that contentment in life cannot be found in wealth, success, advancement, pleasure. We know that. It's about time we turn to church. But here's the rub. Here's the rub of the book. The professor is actually going to show us indirectly, a kind of engagement with the church that is equally meaningless. He's going to point out that there's a kind of religiosity that's every bit as meaningless as the pursuit of worldly pleasures. This is what he's going to do in chapter 5. And he's going to warn us that just because you turn your attention away from laughter and pleasure and riches to church, God, and religion doesn't mean you're automatically searching for the good life in the right place or the correct manner. So he's going to show us in chapter 5 how to make church meaningless. Let's look at it. Chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares. And many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at three ways we make church meaningless. If you want to make church meaningless, here's the recipe. Come thoughtlessly, treat it inconsiderately, and participate selfishly. There's the recipe for making church meaningless. Come thoughtlessly, treat it inconsiderately, participate 
selfishly. First, come thoughtlessly. In verse one, the professor says, guard your steps when you come to the house of God. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. This imagery of guarding one's steps. Think about that visually for a minute. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. It's conveying the idea of intentionality, of thoughtfulness, of being deliberate about something. The mind is engaged. Um, Conversely, if you want to make church meaningless, don't think about what it is you're doing or about to do. Disengage the mind. Put your body on cruise control. Show up out of habit. Show up because that's just what you do on Sunday. If you want to make church meaningless, come thoughtlessly. It's worth it to take a minute just to think about this on a practical level. Guarding your steps as you come to the house of God. It's worth thinking about on a practical level. And I want to do this by offering just three practices to consider employing in your life to guard your steps when you come to the house of God. These are going to come across as strongly worded rules not rules, this is not a matter of your salvation. I would say this is more an issue of prudentiality as we think about our engagement with the body of Christ. So here are three practices for you to consider employing in your life in order to guard your steps when you come to the house of God and to avoid making church meaningless. First, foster personal and family worship during the week. Foster personal and family worship during the week. I hope Sunday morning's not the only time you spend during the week in worship. I hope as an individual or for family, if you're part of one, that you've cultivated some kind of personal worship throughout the week. That can include things like reading and meditating on Scripture. It can include things like singing worship songs in your car or as you take a walk through your neighborhood. Don't worry about what your neighbors think. Parents, if you have young children, when you put them to bed at night, instead of singing Mary Had a Little Lamb or Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, sing worship songs to them. Let them learn those. Or pick up a children's story Bible to read to your kids. And I hope that we've all cultivated to some level a a discipline, a personal practice of private prayer. I don't think we can just show up on Sunday mornings and worship. I think it needs to be cultivated throughout all of life. Day in and day out, week in and week out. By doing that, by cultivating that discipline, that practice in your life, you're going to guard your steps as you come to the house of God. Second practice. How about practice a Sunday morning media blackout? Sunday morning media blackout. No TV, no iDevices, no social media, no newspapers, no movies, no television shows, no Instagram, no Twitter. Declare your times before church on Sunday morning to be media blackout time. I'm grateful to my parents that they cultivated this in our home growing up. I think it had a greenhouse effect in our family's life together. So if you've got some time to kill before church on Sunday mornings, brew a cup of coffee, brew a cup of tea, open the scriptures and read. Start a prayer journal or a reflection journal 
Oftentimes, I've got, two, I've got two journals. I've got a prayer journal. I have a reflections journal. And I use them both. I'll open the scriptures. I'll read through them. I'll read through it again. I'll read through it again. I'll read through it again. And then I'll start writing my reflections on it. And I'll turn to my prayer journal and start praying through what I've just reflected on. Do that on Sunday morning. Go for a walk, a prayer walk on Sunday morning. If you are going to employ technology before church on Sunday morning, let it be someone reading scripture to you. If you have a family, make that a family devotional breakfast time. Make breakfast, sit down, enjoy fellowship together at the table. Lord knows we don't have enough of that as families these days. Use that as an opportunity to do some devotions with the, with the, with the family together. Declare Sunday morning before church to be a media blackout time. Third, and this will surely step on a few toes, come to church early. <laughs> I understand what it's like to try to get a family out the door to something on time. It's a war. But don't wave the white flag on that war, particularly on Sunday mornings. Keep battling. Keep fighting. The worship center is open well before the service starts. You, you might be amazed at what God's able to do in your heart and mind if you take three minutes before the service starts to engage him in prayer. You might be shocked at what that does for your own spiritual vitality. So come to church early. These are some practical measures we can take in order to guard our steps as we come to the house of God. These are some practical steps we can take to help prevent, protect us from making church meaningless. The professor continues and he gives us another way we can make the church meaningless, and that is to treat it inconsiderately. It is in quotation marks for a reason that'll become clear as we work through this. Verse one again says, guard your steps when you come to the house of God. Now let's think about this term house of God for a minute. Um, in the Old Testament, the house of God was the temple. The temple, according to the Old Covenant, was the physical representation of the presence of God. God lived in the temple, so to speak. But since Jesus has come and lived and died and rose again, the presence of God has changed, right? It's no longer a physical building like the temple was. Okay? This church building is not the house of God. Things have changed. Jesus made that abundantly clear in John 4. Book of Hebrews makes that clear throughout. Because of what Christ has done, what now is the house of God? Because of what Christ has done, what now is the house of God? What is the, because of Christ, what is now the dwelling place of God? The church is the dwelling place of God. We looked at that this past winter. And by church, I don't mean a building. The church is the global body of believers, believers in every age. The house of God under the new covenant is a group of people. It's not a structure. The house of God under the new covenant is a group of people known as Christians. So here the professor is saying, guard your steps when you come to the house of God. Very interesting how this would play out in the new covenant. The application, perhaps an application is having a sincere and deep regard for the group of people known as the church. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. Not a structure, not a building, but a group of people. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. 
We show a deep regard for the house of God. We show a deep regard for the church in the way that we talk about each other. We show a deep regard for the church in the way we talk to each other, in the way we treat each other, in the way we pray for one another. This is why I think the New Testament writers are so strong in their opposition to issues like gossip and slander. Because it shows an utter disregard for the house of God. Tearing down another Christian verbally is like ransacking the Old Testament temple. This is why I think the theme of unity is prevalent throughout the scriptures. Let's just listen to a few of these verses. Psalm 133 verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Jesus praying in John 17 says, my prayer is not for them, that is his disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be, there's again, one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Commitment to unity shows a deep regard for the house of God. But notice also in those verses, the evangelistic power of a church united. That they may be one. Then the world will know that you have sent me. 1 Corinthians 1, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Ephesians 4, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How we talk about other Christians betrays to what extent we truly value the house of God. The theme of unity is pervasive in the scriptures. And I have no reason, that, no doubt that, that one of the reasons for this is rooted in the philosophy professor's point in Ecclesiastes 5. When you treat the house of God inconsiderately, when you treat the church inconsiderately, you make church just as meaningless as looking to pleasure to satisfy the human heart. When Christians view the church reverently, however, it creates the conditions for unity. And unity makes a church powerful. Unity makes a church resilient. The Hagia Sophia in Istanbul is one of, the, one of antiquity's most unique structures. Um, Emperor Justinian opened this cathedral in 532 AD, and for a thousand years it was the, the largest cathedral um, in the world. But there's something about the Hagia Sophia that makes it even more unique. Um, it's a self-healing church. Uh, it was originally fas fashioned from extraordinarily hardy cement from one of the islands in the, in the Mediterranean. 
And the mortar in its walls has not fully set, even after a millennium and a half later. When earthquakes strike this region, as they often do, um, cracks and fissures open up in the structure itself, but they remain only until the next downpour. The water seeps through in and around these cracks and fissures, resetting the cement, sealing it tight. It's a far more effective repair system than any engineer could devise. Thus the term a self-healing church. What if the global body of believers in the world today became a self-healing church? What if the global body of believers possessed the ability to self-heal? Well, what's needed for that to happen? I think the professor's putting his finger on it when he talks about the importance of guarding your steps when you come to the house of God. We will be a self-healing church. And by we, I mean the global body of believers will be a self-healing church to the degree we possess a reverence for the church, to the, the degree we really value guarding our steps as we come to the gathering of the church. We will be a self-healing church, resilient and influential as each of us learns to practice verses like Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. A unified church is a self-healing church. Third characteristic of someone who makes church meaningless is they participate selfishly. If you want to make church every bit as meaningless as finding contentment in the local bar, come thoughtlessly, treat it inconsiderately, and third, participate selfishly. One of the main themes that runs all the way through this section is this attitude of what can I get out of this? What can I get out of this? What's in this for me? One of the concerns a professor has is that people are coming to the house of God in order to be heard rather than to hear. Go, he says, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Come to the house of God in order to listen. Listen first. He's concerned the opposite's happening. In the section about vows in verses 4 through 7, there's a sense in which the person is trying to weasel his way out of something in order to get something, to retain something. There's an air of manipulation going on there. God, if I scratch your back, will you scratch mine? If I scratch it this much, how much will you scratch mine? There's a concern more for the payoff. What's in it for me? What can I get out of this? What are my preferences being met? Are the desires that I have of this gathering of people, are they, are they being met? When I approach church as a way to get God to bless me or as a way to have my personal preferences met, I've made church meaningless. There's a rather famous individual in the broader Christian community who once said this, when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. We're doing it for ourselves. Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. 
When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. It would be easy for us to give this person a hard time over a comment like that, but the reality is we drift towards this too. We can drift towards thinking the church is about me and whether or not it's making me happy rather than whether or not I am worshiping the God who made me and redeemed me. In American evangelicalism, you see this often in what kinds of messages people crave. Five ways to live successfully in the world. That's interesting. But a sermon on the transcendent glory of God is a snore. We've got a plethora of Bible studies that teach us how to be brave like David or to be committed to prayer like Daniel. But we don't have too many Bible studies out there that show us how those figures anticipate Christ. Of how Jesus truly is the true and better David, the true and better Daniel. American evangelicalism, entire worship services are planned around the thoughts and concerns of the worshiper rather than the one being worshipped. This notion has been illustrated well with the cat and dog theology. Some of you have probably heard this. Cat and dog theology. A dog says, you pet me, feed me, shelter me, and love me. You must be God. But a cat says, you pet me, feed me, shelter me, and love me. I must be God. Cat lovers, don't send me emails this week. <laughs> Which one are you? Danny Aiken writes on this phenomenon. He says, God is no longer the almighty sovereign king of the universe. He's a personal shopper, life coach, homeboy, and genie all rolled into one. We see God as a means to an end, not an end in and of himself. We use God to get what we really want. Some come back to church, start giving money regularly, have perfect attendance in Bible study because they hope God will take their cancer away, fix their family, provide them with wealth. One pastor tells a true story that exemplifies this. He was working with someone in his church. He said this, I met with a man years ago who was experiencing a crisis of faith. He was 40 years old. He was single. He was thinking of walking away from the church when he was in his young adult years. Did so and then came back at 35 because, he said, he desperately wanted to be married. He told me that for five years, five long years, he attended worship tithed regularly, and volunteered in ministries, and yet God had not given him a wife. When we approach church, the people who are part of the church, we approach it with the idea of what can I get out of this? How can this institution, this structure, this community of people scratch the itches I have? How, how can these people, this institution, this group, how can they meet my preferences? 
we have turned church into a glorified brothel. And according to the text, we show ourselves to be fools. Derek Kidner in his fantastic little commentary in the book writes, the professor's reminder that God has no pleasure in fools in verse 4 is as quietly crushing a remark as any in the book. In the flow of thought, the fool is the one quick to speak. In the flow of thought, the fool is the one quick to utter desires and preferences to be met. You want to make church meaningless, come thoughtlessly, treat it inconsiderately, participate selfishly. If you do that, if you do it that way, you'll make church every bit as meaningless as finding satisfaction at the local bar. Now the conclusion of the matter is three words at the end of verse 7. This is the professor's hint at a solution. Therefore, fear God. That's it. That's all he says. He doesn't unpack it. He says, therefore, fear God. Just another way he's trying to irritate the reader. But it does make sense. Fearing God then must mean that that protects us from coming thoughtlessly. Fearing God must help protect us from treating the church inconsiderately. Fearing God must be the solution to protecting us from participating selfishly. Fear God. We're going to look at that and what that means in more detail next Sunday. Maybe the best way, though, to try to drive at what this fear of God means or what this looks like is to turn to a New Testament passage that could be a relative of Ecclesiastes 5. And that's found in Acts chapter 5. It's an example of someone not guarding their steps when they came to the house of God. It's an example of a husband and a wife who made church meaningless by coming thoughtlessly, treating it inconsiderately, and participating selfishly. Let me read the story. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and has, have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, 
The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It's a New Testament example a husband and wife treating the church as if it was meaningless. Jesus did not break into human existence, live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died so we can treat him like a genie. He didn't break into human existence to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died so that we can look at the church as an ATM machine. What can I get out of it? The story of Ananias and Sapphira illustrates the danger we put ourselves in if we approach the church with a me-first attitude. And this story shows us, as uncomfortable as it is, that God has no problem purging the church of those who approach it this way. as I was working my way through this text, realizing what was in Ecclesiastes 5 and its connections to other places in Scripture, I got done, I sat back from it, and I thought, well, this is not going to be the feel-good story of the year. We don't hear this in American evangelicalism because it doesn't sell. Very few will download this podcast but we can't afford to skip it. It's in the text. What are you going to do? Stick your head in the sand and hope that part's not true? So let's plead with God. Through the power of the gospel, we may be people who have been so transformed by it that our love and regard for the church would mirror the regard and love for the church demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, everything in our culture fights against this. The air we breathe is of comfort and convenience. And unwittingly, we can transport that understanding into the church, that it exists to make my life more convenient and more comfortable. As we search the scriptures, God, you show yourself to be someone who we should not be entirely comfortable with. You're to be feared. You are the God who struck Ananias and Sapphira down. Our corrupt natures have a gravitational pull that constantly drag us back to me first thinking. 
So God, I pray that by your word, by your spirit, you would shave off the rough edges of that nature and form us into a a people who show a deep reverence and regard for you and thus a deep reverence and regard for the church. remaining minutes we have, God, I pray that you would show us your holiness. That we would be humbled by it. That we would listen. And the words we do speak would be honoring to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence, without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. God's people said, Amen. Amen.